Own your 50 means there is 100% of the problem and you are 50% of it. The minute we engage in it, we become 50% of the problem or the solution. I get to choose how I see this. I get to choose how I respond to this. I get to choose how I talk about it, think about it, and how, how it carries around with me. But I mean ownership as to how am I part of the problem? You've got to start within and you've got to really take ownership over you. And then you've got to look at the world around you with curiosity. Welcome to the Improvement Nerds Podcast, where we host conversations about the things that nerd us out with one goal in mind, sharing best practices and sharing techniques and tools that allow us to make lasting change. In each episode, we'll feature a different idea and hopefully through that episode, give you a set of new tools, new skills, and new thinking that'll allow you to change how you do your work, how you lead others, and how you show up in your life. We're so excited that you've chosen to nerd out with us. We hope that these episodes are exactly the things that you need to hear in order to get started in making the improvements that you want to see happen in the world. If these episodes speak to you, please subscribe to our podcast, like what we're doing, and leave a comment. If internally your team is not solid, then your customers will fill it somehow, some way. Yeah, I would say, you know, excellent customer service or experience, whether it's internal or external, is really a series of managing expectations. And so I say the own your 50 model is really in the center. If we can step off and not be victim, not be persecutor, not be rescuer, and then we move to the center and we get to a place of solution. Well, we can't lead the way we let ourselves or we can't walk people to success the exact same way that we found it. They've got to find their own path. They've got to agree to it. They have to own their 50. Otherwise, we're immediately setting it up for us to be a rescuer or persecutor and for them to feel like a victim. Margaret Mead said it best when she shared that one should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, that it was the only thing that ever had. I couldn't agree more. Let's get busy, Improvement Nerds. We've got a lot of work to do. Hey, Improvement Nerds. This is Tom. I'm back with another episode of the Improvement Nerds podcast. Today, I have a special guest. I can't wait for you all to meet Amy Woodall. So Amy and I have met uh, through social media and following each other's comments and conversations that we're trying to drive through that platform, specifically LinkedIn. So some of the things I've seen Amy do on there is talk a lot about leadership and the role that leaders play in delivering an excellent customer experience and driving a team-based approach to serving your customers all the way from that initial contact through uh, understanding what that customer's needs are and designing a product or service or solutions and packaging that and selling that to your customer and then actually delivering and following all the way through on that promise. So that is um, quite a journey to, to be able to do that as an organization. And Amy and her organization, Sandler, really specializes on how to effectively sell, uh, but also see that all the way through to the end to deliver an exceptional experience to the customers. So in, in the comments 
that she puts out there, the videos that she creates, it's very easy to see that she's passionate about customer service and passionate about teamwork. So uh, we were drawn to each other and, and the conversations that we've had have been very fluid because those things are really important to improvement. So excited to have Amy on the show today. Amy, welcome. Hey, Tom. Thank you for having me. Super excited. So um, as we get going, I'm just going to jump right in and ask you the big question, and then we'll get to your background and your history uh, as we nerd out and we go deeper on this topic. But today, what what are what's the topic we're going to be nerding out about? Tell me a little bit about the thing that you're nerded out about, that you're overly passionate about, that we're going to be sharing with our audience today. Oh, man. My soapbox, Tom, is all on owning your 50, which is really extreme ownership. It is something that I could, not only have I spoken about it a lot, I created keynotes around it. That's how passionate I am. I'm like, somebody give me a soapbox and a microphone because I am so passionate about the power of this and how it changes people and organizations. Um, and, and so, yeah, that is, that's my jam. Ownership. Ownership. Such an important topic. Um, especially in improvement, but beyond improvement. So from my lens, as I work with organizations and I help them to, you know, move a project forward or a change initiative or uh, address an opportunity for improvement, if leadership isn't bought in to support and provide the resources to get that done, that is uh choppy water right out of the gate. So leadership and and their buy-in and their level of ownership is critically important. So ownership hits there. And then as the team embarks on the journey and tries to facilitate change and make the project a success, their ownership is important because they've got to be bought in and they've got to be bringing them best selves to the project and be willing to change and be willing to share their ideas. So they have to own that part of it. And then after the project's done and change has been recommended and things are being done a different way, ownership's important there because then you have to sustain it and you have to measure it and you have to monitor it. So across the whole improvement cycle from, you know, leadership support and providing resources to executing the project to sustaining the results, ownership is important across all those facets. So I'm so glad we're nerding about it, nerding out about it today. But beyond just making projects successful, I think ownership from what you and I have talked about is really important to teams working well together and individuals um, feeling accomplished in their work. So even having self-ownership is important too. So whole many, there's a lot of whole rabbit holes to go down in regards to this topic. So we'll try to keep it short. We'll try to keep it under that 45 minute mark. But, you know, if we get a little beyond that, I don't think our audience is going to be too upset. It's, it's easy to do. <laughs> now you've got my wheels turning. I can't wait to dive deeper with this into this with you. So in regards to extreme ownership, I'm curious, um, how did this become a passion for you? Tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to uh, come to this topic and to feel so passionate about it that you're a podcast guest about it, that you're doing keynotes about it. So tell us a little bit about the backstory. Yeah, so you you mentioned kind of briefly like Sandler, which is an organization I've worked for for seven plus years. I've actually had a relationship for with Sandler for ten years. Um, we're best known as 
the worldwide leader in sales training and development. That's the bread and butter of Sandler. And so when I came back to Sandler in 2013, I had a, a stint from kind of 2009 to 2010 and then came back in 2013. Um, I had just a different lens and my I came in with the idea of like, hey, so what happens when sales sell something? Like, how do we teach the rest of the organization how to not screw it up, right? And so um, I made the customer care program my baby and really teaching organizations how to have this methodology that we teach woven throughout their entire culture from leadership to sales to, to service. And in going in and teaching it, I went in somewhat naively thinking, I'm going to teach these folks, you know, project managers and engineers and account, like all sorts of, of different um, positions. I'm going to teach them how to retain their customers and, you know, really have a great client experience. And that was such a naive thought of me, you know, something for me to think, because as I'm going in and teaching, what I'm hearing from folks is that there was a severe lack of internal customer service. And I have seen this in organizations, large and small, in pretty much all areas of the world. If internally your team is not solid, then your customers will fill it somehow, some way, and it doesn't matter how much you try to wow them in their experience. And so the, the focus then shifted first to internal customer service and, you know, how we're treating one another. And, and the continuation of that, what I really recognized was this lack of willingness to take ownership. And I don't just mean like accountability to complete projects, right? Because that's one level of ownership, which is definitely important. But I mean ownership as to how am I part of the problem? It was so easy for people to say, well, it's sales fault or it's accounting's fault or it's this or it's my colleague or it's my boss and really play the victim and the woe is me to what was happening around them rather than saying, but I get to choose how I see this. I get to choose how I respond to this. I get to choose how I talk about it, think about it and how it, how it carries around with me. And so I then went to Sandler and said, let me develop the Dealing with Difficult People program, which I did. And that spun off my keynote, People Suck. <laughs> and I've done that. I did the keynote, People Suck for about 15,000 people in 2019. And it was so fun to do it. You know, I did it for um, the healthcare world and IT and manufacturing. And um, I spoke at a concrete conference. I mean, I was really everywhere. And everybody dug it because they understand, like, dealing with people are difficult. And the real takeaway from that isn't people really don't suck. It's our response to it. And that's where I would go in and teach the um, how to own your 50, how to own your part. So it sounds like a, a light bulb type moment in your your journey to say like, there's a gap here. Like a lot of organizations are focusing on the, the client experience or the customer experience. And that's important to focus on, but reality is to execute on that the team has to really gel and there's almost no focus on how individuals work collaboratively across a shared customer experience. So healthcare, I think is really interesting. I'm sure they ate your presentation up because it's very complex. A lot of business is very complex, but I'm most familiar with healthcare. So you have a patient or the patient family who, you know, has an event happen, when they go and they consume healthcare, they're interacting with the organization across a lot of different touch points from 
if they go through the emergency room or if they go in through their family physician, you know, that's two different type of experiences. And, and say they discover something that requires surgery or hospitalization, then they go to the surgeon and they get the procedure done. And to recover, they go to the hospital. And after the hospitalization, then they go to home health and they're getting resources and equipment to practice self-care at home. And then after that, they go back to the family physician for routine checkups and follow-up just to make sure they recovered. So that's one patient's journey across all these different touch points. And oftentimes these touch points, these different locations of that organization don't communicate well, uh, don't collaborate well, and really don't know what each other does. And because of that, there's these hardened silos and there's this confusion between the operators and the people who are really trying to do the best they can to give that person a great experience and a great outcome. But because each of these different touch points are very fuzzy and confusing to all the individual touch points, like it just gets really muddy. So I'm sure as you presented to healthcare, like they really understood that for this to give the customer the best experience, these internal processes have to work really well together. And there has to be some sense of ownership to want to know what the other person does and how that impacts what you do and what you do impacts the next step. Yeah, I would say, you know, excellent customer service or experience, whether that's internal or external, is really a series of managing expectations. You know, understanding what do you know already? What are your expectations? And then how do we need to readjust or realign those? And the baton pass off from, you know, experience to experience is where it really, where, where the magic comes. And so, you know, the, the thing about this own your 50 is it came through because where people struggle is in difficult situations. That's no surprise, right? You know, an easy customer or easy uh, client or patient, or, you know, fill in the blank of however this fits into your world. Those are not the things that really teach us the lesson, they're the things that allow us to just go through the motions and never stop to consider how we can do it differently. So when we do have a disruption, maybe a patient or a customer is frustrated, maybe an internal customer is frustrated. What we often do is we, we don't realize that we hop on what's called Karpman's drama triangle. There's three positions. And by the way, it takes two to tango. It takes two people in order for drama to even be created, right? But Karpman's drama triangle has three positions. It's There's the victim, which is the one who's like, this isn't my fault. Like you guys are to blame, right? It's sort of the, the one who feels like they've been done wrong. There's the persecutor who's pointing the finger and is like, I told you, this is what I said. And they're kind of, they're trying to justify. And then there's the rescuer. And that's where a lot of leaders end up falling into. And the rescuer is the one that's coming in and trying to make it all better. And they feel like they're taking the best position, but in reality, they're developing learned helplessness. And so in those moments, basically what we're doing is we're teaching people how to need us and how to be helpless. And so I say the own your 50 model is really in the center. If we can step off and not be victim, not be persecutor, not be rescuer, it's okay to, to step there momentarily, but we've got to recognize it. And then we move to the center and we get to a place of solution. And that's where we ask ourselves, and by the way, for those who are saying, but what the heck does Own Your 50 mean? Own Your 50 means there is 100% of the problem and you are 50% of it. The minute we engage in it, 
we become 50% of the problem or the solution. And the challenge is when we're in victim mode, we are giving our 50 away. We're like, not me, not my problem. I didn't do this or, you know, don't blame me. So we give our 50 away, which means we have zero ability to make change or create a solution. When we're in persecutor mode, we're giving our 50 away. We're like, no, 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 you're the idiot here, not me. And when we're in rescuer mode, we're trying to own everyone's 50. We're, we're not just, you know, we're trying to take it on for everybody. So we're bearing the burden of the world. And really the, the right mix is there's only so much you can control. And we've got to make sure that we're we're taking our, our ownership in that. Um, and again, this can be applied in so many different areas. I mean, I use this at home with my teenage boys. It, it, it is, it's just, it's how we... Uh, rewire our brain and rewire our automatic response to problems and challenges so that we can be more solution oriented. I'm glad that you brought up the triangle. The I've heard it has the dreaded drama triangle in some of the presentations that I've seen in this, this model, the, these roles um, and this concept of learned help, her learned helplessness is like perpetual, right? It's a, a vicious cycle. The more that it happens, the more that individuals fall into this learned helplessness and this looking to be rescued or this looking to blame or this looking to be the victim type thing. It, so you got to know it exists and, and really work intentionally to break the cycle because you know, it's oftentimes been present in a culture for a very long time and no one's been attuned to it. Um, what I've seen in my experience is the leaders oftentimes get promoted into their roles because they're really good problem solvers. And they, as a leader, they think the best thing they can do for their people is to make that person's life and work easy. So they are always really happy to go around and rescue and take on other people's grief and, and things like that. So, you know, these, these things, they have really deep roots and they've been going on for a long time. So I, I want people to be aware, like this is a cycle that is pre probably present within your organization and don't underestimate how hard it is going to be to undo. Mm -hmm. It is because it's, it's hardwired within us, right? We often think that there's like the home us and the work us, but you take yourself everywhere that you go. And so if you're someone who falls into rescuer because a, I have a, I want to, I have a hero complex. Like I feel good when I'm needed. I feel good when I can, um, you know, kind of come in and swoop in and save the day for people that's going to be a hard habit to break because ultimately internally it serves a purpose for you. However, this is where we've got to have these conversations and, and, you know, Tom, we're talking about kind of the journey to this. It's so interesting. Like I, I'm a very simple minded person. You know, I, I joke that I barely graduated the fifth grade, you know, and that was public school. So let's be honest, it was really like the second grade. And, and so I think very simply, and I really think in terms of root cause. And so as I went in and was thought I was teaching customer care and it really turned into internal customer care and that really turned into personal ownership. And then, you know, another aha was, oh, well, the reason we all suck so bad at communicating with one another is because we don't know how to do it with ourselves. 
And, and that led me down the path of learning how to meditate. And I be, went through a 200 hour certification to become a meditation teacher. And not so that I can teach people how to like hug trees and eat granola, but because in learning how to own our 50, we have to understand the, the buttons that are pushed within us that cause our automatic reaction. And when we're conscious enough through using things like mindfulness and meditation, we can step back away from our behavior and start to see it before it happens. And now we can start to really make a determination and be more conscious about where do I want to fall? You know what? I think I naturally fall for victim. And that's because it's hard for me to take ownership because I felt, you know, it's hard for me to take blame. And so now we can understand what are my triggers that, that I feel both at home and at work that start to kind of up-level that victim feeling where I want to point the finger and blame the world. And now what can I do to make the shift happen? So, you know, again, I could go on like all day about this, both in like very technical pieces and in very philosophical pieces. But I do think that this is such a major gap for many people that the minute we feel our fingers pointing at someone else, we have to take a moment and say, what can I do from here? That playing out in life is really important to be aware of is that all change happens at an individual level first, right? And that I think from the improvement nerds perspective and change a lot of the way that I've led change within organizations it has a project manager, the number one priority of any project I ever was, was on was the people who were on my project and to pour into them and to really develop them so that they can be effective individual contributors. And if they could then do that, then they can be effective collaborators and team members and, you know, effective teams then can do more than any one person could do by themselves and just kind of like get that flywheel going, working from self-awareness to um, ability to work stronger as a team and then stronger teams to roll up to an improved organization or a more robust culture and then beyond that is, you know, how does that organization, how does that that culture contribute to society in general? And, you know, what's going on outside the four walls of that organization and how do they, you know, act as a steward or a servant to someone else? So this like all starts with the an individual, right? For all the, all those things to play out, for an organization to be really good at giving back, the first thing they have to get right is helping their individuals know who they are and how they can contribute and to really clear the path so that person can show up in better ways to to give of themselves and then that all adds up over time yeah there's there's two ways to like you know um the idea of culture and engagement is such a big conversation now. And this is in all industries that, you know, this has become really a hot topic. And I, and I'm happy that it's, there's been such a shift. It's been fun to see in my career of a shift of results, results, results to how do we bring our people along? Because when our people are engaged, the results happen, right? So I love to see that this equation is being worked from a different end. And, you know, my, my message that of like applying this own your 50 internally for engagement and, and culture and collaboration, and whether it's for a smaller group of team or for the collective is that, hey, your employees, they're 50% of their own engagement. 
I mean, you can bring them the tools, you can set up the, the landscape, you can bring in the pool table and the, the beer keg, and you can, you know, have the training or whatever the case might be, but then they've got to take their step to be a part of it too. And if we're thinking about this in our, you know, your example of working with a group of projects managers, you know, it is so important that we do have a high sense of self-awareness and we, we also take ownership of that and don't bring ego to the table. And we're, I, I teach a lot of DISC and there's so many different behavioral assessments that are really amazing out there. DISC just happens to be one that, that we teach. And so one thing that I see when people are developing self-awareness is they can also develop ego around their self-awareness, which is, well, I'm this way and people should know. And, and so something else that goes along with that of this awareness is we've got to have awareness and flexibility flexibility. That's a big piece of learning to own our 50 is saying, I know myself wholly deeply and I, you know, I'm very in tune with myself, but I'm also willing to be very flexible for others. And the way we show up influences the role that other people take. So if we go back to that Cartman's drama triangle, let's just say this can happen in small and large ways, whether it's really big problems or whether it's just teeny tiny problems that we, the, the drama triangle can still show up. You know, if you, um, chose to, you know, ask a coworker like, um, Hey, you were supposed to get this to me last week, you know, and and I'm still waiting on this to get my job done. Um, if we say it in a way that disrupts them, we could show up unintentionally as the persecutor. And so with, with our position, we can kind of rope them into becoming the victim. And they're like, well, I didn't see that email. I didn't know anything about it, right? And so now we're, we're kind of playing games. And so us taking extreme ownership over how we show up not only affects how we're able to, to help, but it also affects how we're influencing the people around us. And that role modeling is critically important because those individuals uh, are very impressionable. Like what, what they interact with is oftentimes how they're going to react. So if, if they feel that you're coming to them and you weren't assuming positive intent or maybe you're perceived to be aggressive, oftentimes that person's going to meet that perceived aggression with their own aggression and things can spin out of control. So by practicing self-awareness and showing up and trying to role model that, you're giving individuals the opportunity to show up better for themselves. And that's another part of like this vicious cycle is really leaders, how they act and behave. Other individuals look to that and they emulate it oftentimes. So if leaders aren't practicing self-awareness, you're the people who are following you aren't either. We owe it to each other and we owe it to ourselves to try to show up uh, and be more mindful and to create space where everyone feels safe and welcomed and, and good things will happen from there. Mm-hmm. There, you know, there's a couple things that we can keep in mind if, if people are like, well, how do, how do we start to apply this? So one thing I just will share my own personal model m- motto, I should say, is that I refuse to make anyone responsible for my happiness. And it sounds a little cheesy and again, maybe a little esoteric in a way, but, but that what, what I'm saying there is I refuse to allow the behavior of other people to disrupt how I'm willing to show up. And that takes practice. You know, I, I tell my boys, I have two, two teenage boys, they're 13 and 15. And I will tell them, you're not allowed to say somebody's making you mad. Like you can't, you can't pl- blame someone else for how you are feeling. You're choosing to be upset like that. That's your choice. 
you know, in this, in this matter. And so that's something that I really take along with me, especially in my work of, I refuse to make anyone responsible for my happiness. That's it. That it is unfair. And not only that, it makes me ineffective when, when that happens, because then we're jumping on that, that Cartman's drama triangle. Right. And then also the really learning how to own your triggers. So it's not that you never shouldn't be mad because sure there's reasons that you should be but just take ownership over that's your choice right it's not that someone made you it's that a trigger was hit and and it's your choice there's going to be plenty of things that disrupt and frustrate me that you would never bother you tom you'd be like that's no big deal that doesn't even bother me and why because we just have different triggers so um, have you ever heard of ego states or or it's often called transactional analysis i don't know if that's something that's that rings a bell for you I, I, I need to know more. Tell me more. I've got, yes. I've got to go deep on this with you. This is, I could nerd out about this. So this is communication, right? Um, you know, pretend that, I guess the easiest way to describe this is pretend that when you were born, that three cassette tapes were implanted within you. So I'm kicking it old school with cassette tapes, right? And one of those cassette tapes was a parent tape. And what that tape was recording was how our parents and the adults in our lives really showed up for us. How did they parent us? What kind of information did they give us? And so there's two sides of that parent tape. There is the nurturing parent and there's the critical parent. And so the nurturing parent is the one that's like, it's fine, no big deal. You know, it's it, everybody makes mistakes. Let's just clean this up. Everything's gonna be okay. It really creates this idea of safety. And if you can hear the tone that I'm using, it's it resonates as a sense of safety. Everything's okay. The other side of that is the critical parent. And the critical parent was the one who's like, why didn't you study for that test? I know you can do better. Your room is a mess. I told you to clean it up five minutes ago. This is ridiculous, right? And they're the ones who we kind of stand at attention when we hear the critical parent. Well, what that does is that influences our second tape, which is the child tape. And what the child is, is our own personal and unique responses to those parent tapes. So some of us who are listening might have been, you know, children who were very compliant. I just want to do what I'm told. I want to follow the rules because I don't want to get in trouble and I don't like conflict and I don't like when people are upset with me. So if I got yelled at, I would just do what I was told to keep the peace, right? And so when the parent, when the critical parent comes in and is like, you need to clean your room, the compliant child will feel sick to their stomach. Oh no, I upset someone. I feel very guilty, et cetera. Now there's another, there's multiple sides to the child. Maybe you weren't a compliant child. Maybe you were a rebellious child. And the rebellious child is the one who's like, I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like the parent telling me to clean my room or that I need to study for that test. So I'm going to push back on the parent. Whenever the parent says, you need to do this, I'm going to come back and say, I don't care. I don't have to. Why do I need to do that? Right. And there's constant pushing back. Now, there's a few other sides of the child. There's the the natural child, which is the part of us that likes to like play jokes and have fun and be silly. And, you know, there's the little professor, which is the kind that knows how to manipulate to get their way, also known as the youngest children. Like there's some the youngest children in the family. They really know how to say the right things at the right time to influence mom and dad to do what they want because they know that they're adorable and they're the baby. Right. So. The, the third um, tape that we have that's recording, so the first two, we've got the parent, we've got the child, and then we've got the adult tape. What the adult tape is recording is the messages that we heard that is pure logic, right? That's not emotion. It is logic. It is don't touch the stove, it's hot. 
look both ways before you cross the street. It's the part of our brain and our it, that really um, starts to develop, you know, logic and the analytical side. And so each one of us has a unique sort of recording of what that looks like. And it's based on the messages that you got. So when we're in these difficult situations, our buttons are being pushed and they were from recordings from long ago. And, and this transactional analysis, by the way, was created by um, a psychotherapist named Eric Byrne in the 1950s, where he could see these patterns of, you know, these things that happened as a child that's coming back as patterns as adult and how people are automatically responding. So when, let's just say, trouble arises, you know, somebody dropped the ball at work, if you have a high critical parent tape, you might jump down as a leader and say, you know, this is ridiculous. We, you, we look bad in front of our client right now. We cannot have this happen. And by us taking that reaction, AKA the persecutor, we have now pushed the button of that person's child ego state. And so they're either going to feel ashamed, you know, like, or they're going to push back. And, you know, so it's so interesting that these are the games that are being played right in front of us, but we don't see it. So knowing your own tapes is so important for you to get to a place where you can take full ownership over your response. That was really nerdy. And <laughs> I love that second of it. And I think it is really important for individuals to know that that, that is ingrained in you. And that's what's playing out in how you interact with certain situations and certain people and uh, the events on unfolding right in front of you is it's um, somewhat subconscious, like certain things are happening without you even knowing that they're happening. It, it's funny. It's a hundred percent. And so even, you know, this first step of learning is creating a level of awareness. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, I wonder where I am, just pay attention. The next time your child does something, you know, that like they spill a glass of milk everywhere. See what your, what is your automatic response? Is it to say, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. Or is it to say, it's fine, you know, go get the towel, let's clean it up. And, and ha just having an awareness to be an effective communicator and effective leader. The best combination that we can have is to have nurturing and adults come together. Because nurturing when done well does not create complacency and it's not rescuing. When we're doing nurturing without adding the adult, we can come in and we can be the rescuer and we can create that learned helplessness. But when we add the logic behind it, the safety and logic, that's where we can get to a place of ownership. So yeah, just the pure curiosity is interesting. See what your, your natural response is and then ask yourself, how do I want to change it? And have that curiosity about the other party involved, whether it's your kid or someone um, that you're responsible for providing leadership to in the workplace, you know, just be aware of how they're reacting too. I was in an episode with Ryan Sullivan, who talks about his role as a father and how that's changed, how he's provided leadership. And then he said the thing that really opened his eyes was he chose to be a student of his child's design. So he would um, watch and monitor and see how the kid thrived or retreated in certain situations. And he would then take a, uh, an approach to parenting that kid that would really enable them to, you know, overcome those obstacles. So I have maybe a nerdy example, but 
pretty easy to understand is trying to teach a kid how to ride a bike. So I have three boys and they're all in the five to seven year old range. So bike riding is now a milestone for these guys. It's freedom to go in our neighborhood wherever they want and to go see their friends and things like that. But there's a lot of rules to riding a bike and the parent oftentimes knows all these rules. So uh, me, when I taught Hagen, he's our oldest, how to ride a bike. I did it the way my parents taught me how to ride a bike was um, standing over him and trying to give him words of encouragement and motivating him. And um, has he experienced setbacks and stuff to initially be nurturing, but eventually my frustration grew. And, um, you know, at one point I wanted to throw the bike away and like, I could just see how Hagen reacted to that. He wanted to give up because he saw I was giving up. So, you know, I changed my approach and I started to realize that Hagen is highly analytical and he's motivated by goals and data and being able to see his own progress. So we changed how we learned to ride a bike. So at the top of our driveway, we drew a start line. And then Hagen and I would ask him, what do you want to, where do you want to set your initial goal? Let's take another chalk and draw it somewhere else out in the sidewalk and see if you can make it to it. So he owned the goal and he owned the process for how he was going to achieve that goal. And I was simply facilitating his learning. So as he would ride and, you know, not meet the goal, I would stop and say, well, what went wrong? What can you do different? And he would then calibrate and he would try something different. And once he met that goal, I'd ask him, well, what do you want to do now? Do you want to keep, keep that goal or do you want to create a new one? So we were, from an improvement perspective, we were doing what's called PDCA, Plan, Do, Check, Act. And through all these iterations, you know, um, he was thriving because that's how he interacts with our world is through data and being able to set goals and achieve goals and celebrate milestones. So when I allowed myself to parent the way that he wants to be um, developed, like my stress levels really came down and I had a lot of fun. I don't know too many parents that'll tell you they had a lot of fun teaching their kids how to ride a bike, but it's because I I practiced self-awareness. I realized I was parenting in the way that I was parented and trying to teach him how to ride a bike the way I learned to ride a bike. And that I had to stop right there. Yeah, a hundred percent. And your approach there, like what a beautiful gift to give to your son of, you know, him having a fun time and he'll look back fondly on that. And, you know, if we look at this in a, in a bigger context, a people don't argue with their own data, you know, they're far more committed to their information than they are to yours. So by asking him, what do you want your goal to be? he is now committed to the goal. If you said your goal is to ride from here to the, the, you know, uh, mailbox, he might've been like, well, that's too far and I can't do that. And then you, and it could have easily become a victim persecutor back and forth. Well, yes, you can, you haven't even tried yet. Well, you know, and, and so it's so interesting how simply by stepping back and allowing someone to give their input and their information and then working from that space, you now have collaboration that you've created because you chose to take that center step of owning your 50 and allowing him to own his. And if we look at this from a leadership perspective, how often do leaders come in and say, I'm going to lead you the way that I found success in my position? You know, we're often promoted out of because, hey, you're good at your job. 
you're really good at what you do. Let's make you be in charge of people. And they have, you know, what we call non-transferable skills. So they're saying, just do it like me, just do everything that I tell you. And it kind of like you sort of saying, I, I parented the way my parents, you know, parented me. Well, we can't lead the way we, we led ourselves or we can't walk people to success the exact same way that we found it. They've got to find their own path. They've got to agree to it. They have to own their 50. Otherwise, we're immediately setting it up for us to be a rescuer or persecutor and for them to feel like the victim. I think that quote you just had of we can't walk people to success the same way we experienced it is a great way to just kind of encompass what we've been nerding out about is you have to realize that every individual is uniquely different and that what worked for you may not work for them and do share your experiences and all don't just, you know, embellish about how you've succeeded, but also be real and share with people the struggles you've had too, because I think they'll relate to that a little bit better than hearing about how you've hit it out of the park. Um, So I think those most relatable experiences, and I think uh, Alex Perry, I'm reading her book right now, I'm pretty sure she agrees that people relate better to your struggles than they do to your success. So as a leader, you know, thinking, oh, I got to talk about and establish credibility and list all the things I've accomplished. And I can't talk about all the things I've done wrong. No, like we got to also accept that we're humans and uh, exposing that to the people that we're responsible for leading actually strengthens our relationships, not, not erodes it. Yeah. I do think, you know, us all being in the midst of this pandemic and one thing that it has fast forwarded for us, which has been long needed, is this idea of keeping it real and being being authentic. Yep, that's my dogs barking in the background. And yes, those are my kids running around. And yeah, you know, like, I mean, I we're just, we have no, no choice but to be real right now. And it is so necessary because we are whole humans. We really are. And, and the fact that if we try to, you know, take that away or, or not talk about it or really um, resist vulnerability, then we're resisting a deeper connection and collaboration. And, and it really is not taking ownership. One of my core values is authenticity. It just is. My thought is if a customer or a prospect doesn't want to work with me because they don't like how I show up, then we're not meant to work together, you know, and, and I'm okay with that. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely a core value. So um the struggles are real. <laughs> yeah, I think having awareness about what your personal values are, are is an important part of this too, right? So we've talked a lot about in owning your 50, one of the starting points is, is self-awareness. And, you know, that's how you, what, what tapes do you have playing in your head? How do you show up? Um, you know, what role do you want to play in regards to, or what, what role do you tend to play in in regards to the dreaded drama triangle? You know, there's a lot in that, in that part, the starting point and doing the work there is going to equip you to be able to succeed across the other steps that have to be taken in order for this to totally play out. So I think we've really drilled in on that, on that starting point. And I think we, I'm guessing at the next point is, this concept of curiosity for the other party. And I, I don't know which guru in Lean Six Sigma said it, but they had said the, 
in improvement, the best thing you can do is to treat the next process step as the customer. So your internal customer focus is what do I do and what is the thing that I do day in and day out and and how does that impact the next person's uh, work and and to just see how this whole this whole thing unfolds across your organization across your system. So is step two in owning your fifty that that curiosity about the other party and treating that next person that that next process step has the customer what what's step two of this yeah you nailed it that is it it is first you know you you got to start within and you've got to really take ownership over you and then you've got to look at the world around you with curiosity why are why are they behaving that way why are they responding that way what is it maybe it's a behavioral difference maybe, I mean there's so many different layers and this is what's fun about our job to get to go in and teach all of these various elements so that we're really armed with being like ninja communicators right and and listen the most successful salespeople are just really good communicators the, the most the most successful leaders are really, really good communicators and they know how to do it for their position. The same with customer service. I mean, this is just a, it is a life skill that we all need. The best marriages are built on, you know, trust and effective communication. So um, the next step is get, learn other people, you know, read as many psychology and human behavior books as you can. There's so much good knowledge that, you know, and, and helpful information that we can take away from that. Then what what occurs thereafter? So kind of we talked about those two steps to paint the bigger picture of, you know, what are what is the path that a person would take in order to be an own your 50 badass? Oh, okay. So, I mean, look at, I think own your 50 is root cause. That is, like I said, learning to communicate with yourself and then other people. And then you can start to work into, I mean, think of all the various trainings that's out there. Think of if your company has ever invested in training that didn't stick, was it because it wasn't the right training or was it because the pre-work wasn't done? Was it because the extreme ownership and the knowing how to communicate with one another wasn't there? So once that seed is planted and you've got that foundation, now you can bring in methodologies, structure, processes, all sorts of things that, you, you know, compile on top of that, that then can be um, reinforced and, you know, all of those things along the way. So I think it's depending upon, Tom, like what the challenge is, if we're saying the challenge is, um, you, you know, a more conducive culture. Well, step one is teach your people how to take ownership. Step two is teach them how to communicate with one another. Step three is now br- bring that culture alive, right? Like what are, what's the behavior that we're doing that's going to tell people that we're living our mission, mission statement, et cetera. Um, so again, it, it's kind of what, what's the challenge that we're working backwards from? I love that. And that, that, is almost in some ways how Hagen learned how to ride a bike, right? Is this rapid experimentation. Um, I have a friend who, when we talk about PDCA, he says it's enlightened trial and error. And it's, you know, looking at the, the challenge, coming up with countermeasures or solutions, acting on those things, collecting insights and results, interpreting those things and learning and rolling that learning into your next step. And it's this evolution, it's this continuous improvement cycle that plays out. And I think there is no final step 
and being an own your 50 badass because it's um, never ending and it's always ongoing with the intentions to continuously improve self, to continuously improve how you show up and serve others, to continuously improve on whatever changes you see need to happen within within your your life within your home within your organizations it's you know constantly taking a step in order to learn what that next step is mm-hmm. it you know i think the maybe the the biggest takeaway is your biggest challenge is truly your biggest lesson and don't you know don't screw that up. I mean, like every time a challenge comes our way, it should be celebrated of, wow, I'm going to learn something here. I really am. And I'm going to make sure I don't repeat it. Whether that is, we just lost five clients and yep, that's a freak out, but there's a big lesson there. Or whether it is, I've struggled with my weight for half my life, right? Like there's a lesson there. Why? Why? It's here to teach us something and, you know, just wrap your arms around it and do something with it. Don't waste that opportunity. Learning either through a success or failure is learning. And that is the thing that really allows us to grow is in any situation, whatever context it might be, if we ask ourselves, what are we meant to learn here and now? And how then can we take that learning to go somewhere else? The ultimate ownership for sure. Absolutely brilliant. I can't thank you enough for coming onto this episode and nerding out with me and sharing such an important topic of ownership with with me. I've enjoyed it, and and I know our the improvement nerd audience are going to love it as well. So as they eat this up and they're like, "I need more. I have to get connected with Amy." How would the improvement nerds do that? How would they go about finding you? How would they go about um, engaging with you? So I'm easiest to find on LinkedIn. <clears throat> That's how you and I connected. I do put videos out. Some I, I think like once a week, I try to stay semi-consistent there. Um, and actually there's my own, I've done an Own Your 50 talk, which is on my LinkedIn profile. And that's just Amy Woodall on LinkedIn. Um, and then they can always email me, amy.woodall at sandler.com. Awesome. And I will make sure to make those things available in the show notes. And I can't wait to put this thing out into the universe and to help improvement-minded individuals or individuals who are trying to um, you know, practice better self-awareness or to improve how they lead or to improve how they parent. Uh, I can't wait to share this episode with them and to really help them um, face those, those obstacles that they might be facing and to just give them a tool, give them new thinking that allows them to take that next step. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been fun. Thank you for this conversation in the platform. Thank you so much for coming on the episode.